from VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship. This is episode two of Circle of Willis, where I discuss the history and science of marriage with Eli Finkel of Northwestern University. So uh, settle down, everyone. Maybe, maybe sit and, and cling nervously to your special someone and have a listen. Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. This is my podcast, Circle of Willis. Today it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Eli Finkel, who is a professor at Northwestern University, splitting his time there between the psychology department, where he directs the Relationships and Motivation Lab, and and the famous Kellogg School of Management, where he holds an outstanding teaching professorship. Actually, uh, owing to his, his regular contributions to the New York Times op-ed page, you may know Eli already, but you may not know that he's published more than 130 peer-reviewed scientific articles describing his original research, uh, all of which was funded by places like the National Science Foundation and the, the National Institutes of Health. And, and you may not know that Eli has a new book out called The All or Nothing Marriage, published by Dutton Press and available Available wherever you like to get your books. I, I have read this book, by the way, and I love it. When I talked with Eli, he was still in the midst of, of writing this book, and, and I'm thrilled to see it hit the bookshelves, which it will have done, I think, by the time many of you hear this. It has to be said that there are a lot of books out there offering relationship advice. You know, it's, it's, it's not... I mean, one, of the, one of the reasons this is a book I think you can really trust is that, is that Eli doesn't... He's not, he's not whispering, you know, false promises here. In fact, I'd say, I'd say he's pretty frank about the, the challenges of marriage in our time. And, uh, but, uh, I mean, that, that, just, that just means the hope and assistance he has to offer is grounded in a, in a clear-eyed view of both the hard work and the genuine pleasure that's there to be, to be found in our closest romantic relationships, uh, I'd say. In this book, uh, Eli also does a nice job of reminding us how important our friendships can be. And on that note, I definitely feel lucky because uh, I can call Eli a friend of mine. I first, I first met Eli about, about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, something like that, on, on the island of Crete, believe it or not, in Greece. My, uh, my friend Dave, David Sabara introduced us. We were all out to dinner someplace. I can't, I can't remember where. Somewhere in... Somewhere in Crete, Rathemno, uh, and and we were we were hanging out, and I immediately realized that that Eli was a guy I wanted to be around. Uh, he just had this look, this uh, this look that communicates sort of crackling intelligence on the one hand, and a, and a little edge, a little danger, and that sort of that sort of crossover there, where 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 intelligence meets a little crazy, that's sort of my social comfort zone. So I, I wanted to be next to that guy and, and talk to him and, you know, see what he was all about. And, uh, and I wasn't disappointed. In fact, in fact, the only problem with Eli, and I encountered this problem with him almost right away, is that I can't, I can't, really, I can't really keep up with him. He's one of those guys who's, who's always on the move, you know. You don't, 
you don't see you don't catch Eli Finkel just sort of just sort of hanging around. When I when I see him, I saw him one time in Amsterdam, for example. Uh, I was living in the Netherlands with my family for a sabbatical, and Eli had come out for a conference, and and we made some plans to meet up. And he was like, "Yeah, so I'm I'm giving two talks, and and I'm working on a paper while I'm here, and I'm, yeah, why don't you know why why don't you why don't you join me for my my 25 mile bike ride in the morning, and and uh, and I'm going for a run later too, maybe, and and we'll probably be out having a you know substantial and exciting and enriching social life you want to you want to do any of that and uh i was like yes absolutely i want to do all that stuff but uh but sadly i couldn't and it, it wasn't because i had other obligations really either uh, the problem with me is that i have these i have limitations you know i have limitations of the mind and limitations of the body i just have these limitations that place constraints on me that are, that are unknown to individuals like Eli Finkel. He makes stuff happen at a level that most of us can only sort of fantasize about. Now, a lot of that stuff is, is obviously scholarship. Uh, he contributes really substantially to the, to the empirical database we all share, of course. Uh, you know, findings on how relationships function, things like that. But, but he's also made tremendous contributions to psychological theory. From my perspective, he's been extremely integrative, taking a taking a sort of bird's eye view of the the larger empirical database that that does exist, and and helping us all uh, with how to think about it. And I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this in this uh, conclusion. It's it's actually why Eli was was honored recently with a theoretical innovation prize from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. Now. One of my favorite personal examples of his theoretical contributions is something Eli calls transactive goal dynamics, which describes the the many ways that people share, negotiate, and pursue goals really together in a, in kind of dynamic systems that sort of sort of resemble f- fully functioning organisms. I think this is I just I think this is a fascinating idea among the many we discuss in the conversation you're about to hear. Uh. That that said, if there's if there's one problem with that conversation, it's that we didn't really get much into Eli's personal life, which is which is one of the things I like to do with these with these recordings. But but you know, from my perspective, that's that's only really a problem if I'm not going to have him back on, which I'm totally I'm totally going to have Eli Finkel back on the show. I mean, if he'll come back on. I mean, if I if I can catch him, maybe during one of those moments when he's not not writing a, a major new review article or, or running a marathon or hosting a, a salon-like social experience or something like that. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure he would try to talk me out of how awesome I think his life is if he were here right, right now, but, but I, I think these things about him. I do, and I envy him a little bit. I envy him his, his energy, and I envy him his intellect and his productivity. He's just, he's just an amazing person. So anyway, if, if I can find him during one of those little gaps in his schedule again, I'm going to bring him back and talk a little bit more uh, with him about his life. But, but until then, we'll just, have to, we'll just have to talk about his work and his ideas, a bunch of which are coming up right now. Friends, comrades, esteemed listeners, here's Eli Finkel. 
How's it going, man? <laughs> good, good. It's good to see you. What's lighting your fire these days? What's really, what's really doing it, doing it for you? I mean, I, 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 I don't really know exactly what to ask you about because there, there are like five things that I could discuss with you for an, for an hour. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's right. I, there's been a lot of stuff that's been exciting. I, I have been, you know, I'm working on the, this book. I think I might have mentioned to you. Oh this, yeah, this what is, a, is this book? The book is the uh, the idea of the all or nothing marriage. So how yeah. the institution has changed over time in the U.S. that uh, makes it so that the elite marriages appear to be better than the elite marriages of any previous era, but that the average marriage is sort of limping along. How do that. you know that? I mean, is this? Well, rela- I, mean, I, I, I tell you, you have that great climbing Mount Maslow paper. Which I love. I love. I tell everybody to read that paper. Thank Is you. this sort of based on that? Yeah, that that's work? that's the idea. I mean, the the answer of how we know that the, the truth is we kind of don't. So he, so here's what we know: the General Social Survey uh, tells us that the uh, proportion of marriage that reaches the highest level of satisfaction, the 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 very happy uh, uh-huh. definition, that's been falling a bit. Again, not crisis level falling, but but linearly declining since the early 70s and that's consistent with the idea that we might be asking more uh, of the marriage not in not in always but in these sort of self-expressive ways we're looking for the marriage to do these very intensive high-level things for us help us uh, discover our identity live lives in accord with with what we discover um, while we're simultaneously spending less time um, with our spouses uh, doing things like intensive parenting and uh, working longer so that we, so, we're, we're yeah. working a lot we're, we're intensive parenting is causing us to spend less time with our spouses less time alone with our spouses less time yes. alone yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so um, good God the amount that we're parenting is interfering heavily with the amount of time that we get alone with our spouse and to the degree that we're looking to our spouse to help us really do these deep difficult, high-level psychological tasks. I mean, it, it's not like it used to be where we looked for our partners to help us, uh, you know, sow the fields or, or even <laughs> even in the 1950s, even things like cherishing each other. Or the 1970s, even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, for some of us. Um, the The... Even cherishing each other, you don't necessarily need this level of profound mutual insight into each yeah. other. You, you can cherish somebody who lives a life totally independent of yours, which is what we had in the separate spheres era. The uh, separate where, spheres era, yeah. which is like everything before... 1960s, basically. Wow. Well, no, it's not everything before. I mean, it's basically the 1950s archetype. Uh-huh. So it's it's what what's known in the the sort of history literature as the the breadwinner, homemaker, love based marriage, and that wasn't people think of that as traditional marriage, be, because it happens to be the marriage that was shown around the time that TV came into existence. So we have yeah. Leave It to Beaver and, and yeah, Father yeah, Knows yeah, Best. Yeah, yeah. But they it were was, all very idealized pictures. Yeah, and it's bizarre. It, it's not only idealized by historical standards. If you really want to talk about traditional marriage, it looks nothing like that whatsoever. It it looks like a, a man and a woman and and a farmhouse, and he doesn't go off and earn wage labor. They try to bring up enough food to feed their eight children, four of whom are going to die anyway. Um, and that is traditional marriage. So, so the idea of the, the separate spheres where the man goes off and, and uh, works in the you know, economic structure and the woman stays home in this sort of tender-hearted place, th- that was really new. That really, so that really that came into existence. So does that mean that before that, the, 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 the man was more involved with the, the day-to-day I mean, you know, what does that mean? I mean, because the, the man and the woman and the woman were both more involved in in day to day goings, comings and goings of the household. Yeah, I mean, the the, the comings, the, there was no separation between 
the home and the place of economic production. The home was the place of economic production. There was no, oh, there was no like, bye, right, honey, right, we'll see right, you after right, work. Right. She had her jobs. He had his jobs. They weren't the same jobs. I'm not saying there were, there were no sex differences in, in the specific jobs people did. She was more likely to tend the gardens. He did the, the more physically demanding tasks. But, but um, Stephanie Kuntz, the, uh, I think, outstanding uh, historian of marriage, says there, there weren't dual career couples. There was a single career that you needed both people to do and that neither one of them could have done independently. This seems to to overlap substantially with your idea of transactive goal dynamics. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I mean, this yeah. is it sounds almost like the definition of transactive goal dynamics. And and the problem, the only problem I have with transactive goal dynamics is saying transactive <laughs> yeah. goal dynamics. Yeah, it's so a brutal phrase. Yeah, it's brutal. <laughs> yeah. So it's what do we homage, do about that? It's an homage to, to Dan, Dan Wagner. To Dan Wagner. Oh, and it, bless it, his heart. I love that his heart, guy. right? And he, I mean, that, that's that's a lot of how I think about that theory is that it's, it's basically a, a a hybrid of of Dan Wagner and Carol Rustbolt, who yeah. both are was your advisor, my right? advisor, and both luminaries, both yeah. of whom died young from very yeah, unfortunate yeah, illnesses. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so that was the bigger priority than than coming up with like a, a catchier label. Will we regret it? I don't know. You know what it is? It's really descriptive, though, too. Yeah. I mean, if you if you if you attend to the meaning of any of the words in the phrase, <laughs> right. it really you know you pretty much they yeah. they, they contain the whole theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, um, yeah, we debated, do we want something like transactive is just a complex word. And, but I mean, I just say yeah. shared goals, shared goals, but, but that doesn't, it's that leaves goals. out the dynamic part that, that, that the, yes. the shared doesn't really deeply explain what's going on in the same sense that the transactive does. That's right. I mean, look, we, we have sh- shared goals mean something specific in the model yeah. and they differ from, uh, oh, am I going to remember the, the labels? Don't mess it up. I, I know. I'm going to mess it up in real time. So, <laughs> so shared goals, I think we defined as goals that we both have for the same target. So uh-huh. we both want me to lose weight. Yeah. They differ from parallel goals, which are goals that we both have, but for different targets. Like I want you to lose weight and you want me to lose weight. And the dynamics be- between those two things... Um, Can they overlap? Sure. So, so the shared goal is... Joint health, you know, right. family health, and yeah. then the parallel goals. That's called that. a joint goal. Okay. Parallel, right, shared, right, right, and right. joint. Okay. Joint is, yes, both of us. Ha- joint goal is, I have it for you and me, and you have it for you and me. That's a yeah. joint goal. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and in the model, these are all significant distinctions. And, and independent of all of this and cross-cutting all of this is who's pursuing the goal. Yeah. So I might have a goal for you to lose weight. But that doesn't tell us anything about who's in charge. Yeah. So I might have a goal for you to lose weight, and therefore I start cooking more healthfully. Yeah. Or I might have a goal for you to lose weight and get annoyed that you're not doing it. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. Who, where's the locus of responsibility for those things? So you'll see how, like, we needed very general terms. Yeah, and you did it. I think you, you hit it. I think <laughs> yeah. you hit it. I think you hit it. It's tough. Yeah. It's tough. It's, yeah. Those are the breaks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we bring it back to, to the initial question of, yeah. of is there evidence for this all-or-nothing marriage? So, so there's definitely evidence that the average marriage is, is declining a bit. The, the problem is, for me, if, if I want to make the strong version of the argument, is the data don't exist. The, there is no study, and, and you can't even really cobble together a series of studies to say, let's look at um, some measure of elite marriageness, uh, something that says, what, what, "I'm spectacularly over the moon. I can't even believe how not, fulfilled not even, I am." What about what about you know Locke Wallace and the DAS and all of those kinds of you know measure, marital quality? So, so what we would, this is a good point because those are standardized measures. Maybe I could use these. So, so yeah. the idea would be I'd need a cutoff. 
Yeah. Right. I would need right. to say the mean has been coming down over time. By the way, I don't. I think I'd have to conduct a, a, te- a cross temporal meta analysis, which is reasonable. But I don't think yeah. anyone's done this yet. I don't think so. To to, to plot Lock Wallace scale by date. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, yeah, date yeah, of study, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. actually a cool idea. And what yeah, I think you're wow, suggesting. That's really right. It is. Yeah. And I think what you're suggesting is, um, is that, you know, and and this is this is the sort of thing I'd been hoping for, and I hadn't thought it through but but yes i think the model suggests that we should be seeing a decline in mean lock wallace or or other type of merit dyadic adjustment score but that if you took a a cutoff near the top that you'd have you'd have more people more marriages that are deeply fulfilling like at the very top and simultaneously decline in the average marriage see, bifurcation the, the, sort of this developing bimodal yeah. distribution yeah. of marriages interesting well the reason why, i mean the argument is the reason why we should be able to is, achieve a better marriage than ever before is basic maslow he he says higher level need fulfillment affords greater serenity happiness and richness of the inner life yeah. Nobody in 1800 or even really 1950 was looking to the top of his hierarchy. No, no, no wife in 1950 said. Right. That was pretty lofty stuff. It wasn't. Maybe really, maybe yeah. Humboldt, you know, <laughs> yeah. traveling around the world, yes. longing for South America. Yes. And in fact, no. In fairness, you see the you sometimes see these things in beautiful love letters between yeah. poets. Yeah. In the 1800s, Goethe. for yeah. example. But but <laughs> but this isn't the norm. I mean, it really wasn't Not. until uh, until. Um, humanistic psychology, like Maslow, went mainstream. There was a human potential movement. Yeah, and this was Carl the Rogers. Rogers, yeah. yeah. This is the countercultural revolution of the '60s that this stuff really starts to take yeah, off. Yeah, and it's only yeah. then people are even looking to their marriage for those things. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I think so. That's only when. That's right. Do you think June? June? Uh, is it June and Ward? June, June Cleaver. Yeah. Do you think that they? So it's clear that they were looking to each other for affection yeah. and co-parenting. June, does, does Ward complete you? <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, she just look at you with the dog, <laughs> yeah, the dog would. head. Lean, she would, you know? she would cock her head and yeah. be like, "What are you? Even what are you even? About? What does that mean?" That's right, that's right. And I yeah, think these I, days, want, I want to know whether Ward is getting a paycheck right. and whether Ward is, you know, well, they cared about the love. And by the 1950s, love was a really big deal, and and a loveless marriage. Really, in the in the late 1800s, you see a loveless marriage becoming a deeply sad thing for people. In the seven, yeah. in 1700. Love was like a neat little perk that maybe you were yeah. lucky enough to get. But no, if you know, you would have been laughed out of your colonial hamlet if you said, <laughs> "I'm not going to marry until I find someone I love," or, or if you said, "Oh, I don't love him anymore. I'm going to leave the marriage." That would have gotten yeah. mocked. Yeah. But by the 1850s and after, and certainly into the 1950s, a loveless marriage was a profoundly sad became a profoundly sad thing. And now we're seeing a new element on top of that. A loveless marriage is still considered profoundly sad, unlike in 1700. But you're also seeing a marriage that that fails to foster your personal growth and development is sad, or that fails oh, to so, offer so, excitement. So the, the 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 realm of possible disappointments is expanding. Yes, but 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 that's precisely right. The realm of possible disappointments is is expanding. But alongside that issue is the realm of possible ways the marriage can thrill you is expanding. So those of us who are able to say, I'm looking to the, to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, I want, I want deep fulfillment, I want you to help me discover who I am and lead a life that affords, that, uh, affords the expression of those things, we'll do that for each other. The people who do that, nobody tried that in the 50s. Yeah. The couples that can do that should, this is just logic, I don't have the data, but the logic is they should be able to achieve a level of marital 
bl- bliss that nobody had ever it's, even tried to get before. Do you think that's really possible? Yes. I mean, so, so the, the, these couples are out there? I mean, of course, I'm one of them, and you're one of them. <laughs> yes, of course. I love you, but, baby. Um, <laughs> that, no, that, that's right. I, I mean, so again, you and I have young kids, and yeah. we, were, we were touching on this earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't... So, so Maslow sometimes talked about people who have self-actualized, and he was talking about... And he said something... I think he said did, something like, like 2% or something. Finding the Buddha or something? Yeah. It's sort of like... He, he did. In his... In his um, some of his early work on this stuff, he, he plucked out like historical characters and talked about it and basically said almost nobody really self-actualizes. But elsewhere, the way he talks is, I think, the, the more sensible way to think about this stuff, which is we fluctuate on this stuff. Nobody, Almost nobody lives a self-actualized state and then just right, resides right. It's there. It's sort of like an emotion. It's sort of like, you know, people who imagine that you can be in a state of joy Right. Constantly. Right. When, which is just not reasonable. No, you'd hedonically adapt for one thing. Yeah, well... Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but, but the striving is there and it's real and, and we have moments where we feel like we've had real self discoveries and, and then we leave a job and find a new job and say, oh my goodness, like this is really who I am. And and this allows me to express the, the particular, you know, Jim Conian qualities about (laughs) me, right? Not like everybody would like this job. Not, not like that. Like there's some alignment between my idiosyncratic, what you might call core self qualities. I know these things get nebulous. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. the yeah. life that I'm able to live. So the question is for the marriage, do I think that there are marriages where both partners are successful in loving each other and by and large or overall really helping them work through who who am I? Who are you? What are our priorities? What are our ideal selves? And now that we've really had some insights on those things, what can we do about our lives to increase the percentage of the time that we're acting in accord with them? Yeah, some people are really succeeding at that. My guess is that you might be one of them, despite the fact that you have two young children. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. When when, when we did our, our our first, we did we did that handholding study in two thousand six. That, that we, we selected people, we used the DAS, and we selected people on a, a, a dyadic adjustment scale uh, on a subscale of that. There's like four subscales. I can't remember what they all are right off the top of my head, but one of them is satisfaction. We selected people who were scored really high on that satisfaction subscale. It was hard to do. We had to let go of a lot of people. Hmm. Really easy to find people in the mid-range or worse. But the really high quality... But the thing that was amazing is that that was satisfaction. So So... Then you add in the other subscales, and all of a sudden there's all this variability hmm. in the overall uh, oh, score of this. You this. mean in the subset of people that you kept? Yeah. There's variability. Right. Interesting. Right? Yeah. So, so according to the, the DAS, there's, there's satisfaction and quality. Yeah. They are not synonymous. They're not synonymous. So, so then I start wondering what that means for your formulation. Is there I, an object? Is there is there an objective uh, assessment? No, I mean I wouldn't want there to be. Uh, yeah. Um, no. Yeah. I mean I I would I would want it to be. Are you finding this marriage fulfilling? But fulfilling is a broader term than satisfaction, which is part of what you're saying. I think. Yeah. 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 So I think it should be subjective, but that doesn't mean that that just a you know hedonic valence measure would be sufficient. And in fact, uh, these are things I haven't thought about but in fact now that i think about them i i think hedonic valence 
isn't the main measure I would want if I uh-huh. were designing a 40-year longitudinal study that goes backwards <laughs> or a 500-year longitudinal study. Um, the, the main measure, b- b- because as Maslow argued, and I think he's right, the, these things are, are often hard work. I, I mean, yeah. imagine that your spouse... Um, Cat. Imagine that cat, uh, the photographer. Yeah. So, yeah. so imagine. I'm just making this up. But imagine that that she's built herself a successful uh, photography business, um, but that she has a an ache, like a yearning to, um, you know, n- not just make a good living doing photography, but to be an artist for the ages. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. and imagine this yeah. is in her. But meanwhile, you guys have two kids, and she's somehow just never getting around to finding the three hours that she needs to like look at a park bench in the right way. Yeah. 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 Um. And so. I don't think it is an easy thing for you to facilitate that, the pursuit of that goal or the achievement of that goal. So sometimes it's going to be like, honey, I'm going to, I'll watch the kids and make sure you can do that. And that's complicated because you also have right, your goals. Right, and needs. right, right. But, and, that, and that may well be sufficient is that, that that's all she needs. But a lot of us have bigger blocks than that. Right, like she, she might. I, I don't have any idea if this would. I don't know if this is her goal or if she would have a block like this. But, but it may well be that she needs an ass kicking, right? That, <laughs> right. that she needs a come on. Like, do you mean it or not? Like, is this a yes. priority or not? Yeah. Well, get off your oh, ass yeah, yeah. because I've watched I you for three that's years. Absolutely right. I think it's absolutely right. And, and you know, I keep doing these social regulation studies, and it's all about social regulation of affect or emotion, like soothing. And I constantly, I've just, I've dropped the ball on this element that social regulation is so much bigger than and broader than soothing it's it's in every part of a of the way in which a couple can interact yeah i mean the the, the question of like what's the right dv is yeah. is tricky and yeah. and i agree like soothing's a really good one yeah right yeah. it's like it's it's nice I, it's oh, it's beautiful yeah. it's a really big deal yeah. but i but i also agree with you that that or maybe we agree with each other here that yeah. soothing it doesn't get the photography done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not in fact, always. In fact, in, right, not always. That's right. No, sometimes it may that it's yeah. a safe base sort of process right, where once right, you right, feel right. soothed, you yeah. go out on your own. But often, it's it's going to be a swift kick in the pants. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's why, coming back to this, what is the right measure of relationship quality, feeling, you know, valence positivity, yeah. satisfaction may not be the optimal benchmark of is this the sort of marriage that is forcing us to do the level of hard, introspective, psychological, and behavioral yeah. work to achieve things that, if they were easy to achieve, we would have achieved them by now. You know what it makes me wonder about is the is the Nash equilibrium. Yeah. You know about a Nash equilibrium? Not well enough. I but know what you, you mean. The, 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 idea, what you, so the idea is that, that you're, you, whatever else is true, you found a solution that yes. any movement in any direction makes it worse. Makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, maybe that's a that's a, a cynical way to look at it. I don't think it's cynical. No, I don't but think it's I, cynical. I mean, so it's one way to to try and operationalize what you're talking about without having to worry about pleasantness all the time. No, that's right. I mean, we don't. Um, our our lives are too uh, dynamic. They yeah. they have too much flux in them to yeah. imagine a, a variation of a Nash equilibrium that sticks yeah right like then you have there's like a new problem that you have at work or you have a a health diagnosis or you start getting fat right i mean like it's and that's what i think is so complicated i mean that's why i think most people probably aren't going to be able to achieve the expectations that they themselves are are placing on the marriage these specific these unique um, idiosyncratic psychological sorts of expectations and they certainly won't be able to do it if they're like okay love you honey bye <laughs> right like it's gonna it's gonna take 
um, and this is sort of like rich person characterization, but I think the sorts of things that are like, well, we saw a challenging matinee and we talked about it. Right. And yeah, like I, th- I think that is one mechanism that certainly like rich people with money and leisure time can do can if they do. really want to challenge themselves to think deeply and 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 try to understand each other. What the other mechanisms are that are optimal. I'm not a, I, I really don't have a strong intuition for that yet. So there, there's a, there's at least a, a, a subset somewhere like the unicorn of of uh, these these very, very, very wonderful relationships yeah. Maybe not. Maybe the unicorn is overstated. I don't want to be too flippant about it. But there, you know, you know, there, we we can, we can probably agree that they're yeah. going to be a minority. Yeah. Uh, and and they're, they're, those relationships are are as they are because they're responding to this this increasing pressure is maybe too negative a word. This increasing expectations. cultural expectation yeah. Yeah. for what the marriage can. What's it doing to everyone else? I think it's again. I think it's on average hurting us a bit. Uh-huh. I, I really I really care a lot that this doesn't get mischaracterized. I mean I'm. Podcasts are we, great because there's no, no editing. Yeah, yeah. Limit, right? Yeah, and that's and right. also we can just you can just talk and talk. So that's right. It, so it's not explain. It, it's it's usually with with other types of media. I don't want to be mischaracterized as saying sure. marriage is in crisis. Right. Marriage is not right. in crisis. In fact, marriage in the U.S. relative to say the rest of the Western world, widely respected here. Yeah. Um, most people want it, even like strongly liberal people who can't even articulate why marriage still matters to them are eagerly walking down the aisle. So marriage is not in crisis. But but the evidence is is pretty clear at this point that that the average marriage is kind of limping along. Now, divorce rates, as you know, have been declining, yep. particularly among the well-to-do, yep. uh, among the, among the, the college-educated. It's, yeah. it's dropped almost by half since about 1980. It's like really, the divorce rates have come down. Um, but overall, if you collapse across uh, socioeconomics, um, the divorce rate is still pretty high. And even among those marriages that are remaining intact, there has been some amount of decline in overall quality. And, and that's, I think, due to the two trends one is the spousification of our social lives so yeah. the amount of time yeah, that I worry we, about this a lot yeah i mean and yeah. the data i don't know if you've seen them but the yeah. data are stark if you if you look say there's good work that looks say at 1975 and then at 2003 how much time do you spend without your spouse but with other with, intimate with other 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 people that yeah, your friends and this family this like sociological data yeah. yeah yeah and it's it's dropped among people with children it's dropped by half so Holy so shit yeah it's half? it's well it's big so so the actual data point that i'm talking about there is hours per weekend day that you engage in, that, that you socialize with people, friends or family, without your spouse there, it's dropped from two hours on average per weekend day to one hour yeah. on average per weekend day among people with ch- who have ch- young, young children at home because of, again, this intensive parenting that we're doing now. And among people who don't have young children at home, it's dropped from about two to about 1.4. But those are precipitous drops in a generation, Holy right? So we've shit, really that's incredible. Yeah, we've really spousified our social network, which is, I think, one of the main reasons why the extent to which you have a, a, a satisfying marriage matters so. Yeah, much. it matters more. And this th- these data exist too. So if you look meta analytically and you look at the association of you know across all the studies that have been done, if you look at the association of earlier marital quality with change over time in personal well-being, psychological wellness, I forget, self-esteem, I think, is lumped in here, um, you see that that the effects are always positive. They were positive yeah. in the 70s, and they're positive now, such that people who have higher-quality marriages tend to show better psychological trajectories over time. But 
the effect is almost twice as strong in the 21st century as it was in the 1970s. And I think part of the reason for that is the fact that we've spousified our lives so much. That it used to be that you've had a diverse portfolio of significant yeah. others, and to a large degree, you don't y- now. Yeah, you don't. So, so yeah. if you've got a good, uh, you've got an awesome spouse, yeah. then things are great. Yeah. If your spouse is more on the not awesome side, yeah. or you know, sort of awesome, right? Yeah, I mean, I would characterize you're not, you're it. Not, it's like it's like a it's like a financial portfolio. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I would characterize it as, as a strong marriage. I mean, your spouse might be perfect for another person. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is a okay, dyadic. Yeah, no, that's very good. That's very. I love process. that. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. that's that's a much better way of looking at it. Yeah, and that's and that stuff dovetails with the the expectation stuff. So the idea is not that we expect more. I mean, people expected their spouse to help them survive in yeah. 1800, which is not a trivial ask. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the high-level psychological and social needs that we expect the spouse to fulfill to a large extent, independent of every other person in your relationship, like you, the, your spouse should uniquely fill these things. Yeah. That's just higher than ever. And that's why you see these increasingly strong relationship between the quality of the marriage and the overall quality of life. You know what I wonder? I wonder, I, I, I've been wondering that even before having this conversation, I've been thinking about, individuals regulating other individuals yeah. and and what what you're sort of the, the possibility that you're raising is that couples as a unit require a, a, a broader sort of concentric circle of, of social resources to regulate the couple interesting to sort of keep the couple uh functioning well interesting. right uh because because suppose that you have diversified uh, suppose, well, this, suppose your spouse. There's some things that you're really disappointed about with your relationship. Your, mm-hmm. your, your, the way your dynamic, the way things things work. If you have diversified, you can take some of that heat off. You know, it, it, it's 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 emotion regulatory work. Yeah. To bite your tongue when you know if you're getting into that same old pattern again of yeah. fighting about something. Or, you know, and 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 you need help with that work. Right. Yeah. So, 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 to the degree to, that you can derive that help from some of the other source, and that translates into how you behave with, with your spouse. You know, the, the, this this regulatory social system seems potentially much broader. Yeah. I mean, th- this is one thing that we've done. I think without noticing it, is um, in the language of goal systems theory. So this gets jargony. Okay. The marriage has become strongly multifinal, and by that I mean so. so if, you oh, take the, yeah. if you take the goal case, the multifinal is the idea that a given means, say walking to work, serves multiple goals. Say. Uh, getting exercise and enjoying the outdoors, right? Yeah. So that's the idea of yeah. multifinality. You can do one thing that achieves multiple yeah. goals. It, it used to be, to a larger extent, that we had a, a, a more diverse social network and we could turn to people to do different sorts of things. To the degree that we've spousified our intimate social life, we're looking to our marriage, our spouse to, do, to help us with a broad range of things that formerly probably would have been spread across a social network. And I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I would say that it's not that likely that the spouse play, that you're playing to your spouse's strength for all of those things, right? So it may be that your spouse is, is just like the best partner in the world if you want to go out and celebrate that, you know, you had a major achievement at work, but your spouse <laughs> is pretty intolerant of your bitching right. about the, right. the person next door. Or they door. don't want to go to you, go, go with you to the new superhero movie. Right. They want to see, yeah. you know, the, the, the French foreign film. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and so, so who do you go to the, the superhero movie right. with? I mean, I think to a large to a larger extent than in the past, you don't see it, or yeah, you wait yeah, for it, yeah, you watch yeah, it yeah. on demand in your home <laughs> by yourself. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. This is the whole bowling alone story a little bit too. To some it's degree, little... it is. Yeah. So, so, so his, so Robert Putnam had, yeah. you know, bowling alone is is the idea that 
in the second, really the, the last two thirds of the 20th century, we had a great decline in civic engagement. Right. He wasn't so much interested in in intimate social networks. He was interested in things like joining school boards, um, the Elks Club, right? Uh-huh. So, so, yeah. so yes, I would say that the ideas overlap. But those are sort of structures, those for, are structures yeah. for, ha- for creating this, That's right. this decentralized social you know, fabric. Right. I mean, what happened? We moved to the suburbs. Yeah. And, um, and we increasingly, and we took we took parenting far more seriously, particularly for men. Yeah. And uh, he blames television. I mean, Putnam, really? don't get Putnam started on television. I right? won't. He, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Get him on keep, one of these podcasts. I'll stay away from him. Yeah. Ask him about when it comes to TV. Uh, you know, something else. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, um, yeah, we did a bunch of things that, that reduced civic engagement. And I do agree with him that, and, and I agree with your observation, that part of what I'm talking about is related to these decline in civic institutions. Yeah. But those are independent from like, why aren't we like hanging out with our sister? I don't yeah. think he was talking about yeah, that. He was yeah, talking yeah. about like civic institutions. Yeah, this is really. I see what you mean. Yeah. It's it's a little bit different. The focus is there. Or, you know, why why aren't we seeing our best friend? And the other thing that I worry, I wonder, is contributing is so. So I guess the characterization I'm getting so far is this is cultural shift, right? Yes, that's right. But, but there's also things like mobility that's that's yep. that's that's moving that that's increasing. So you know, I have moved. Since since starting graduate school, you know, like four times, mm-hmm. right? And every time there's another sort of iteration of forming good friendships, and you that's know, right. and, and that's 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 tough. So historically, so in the so you know, here's the the thirty thousand foot view on on like human economic systems. There's basically been four throughout the course of you know our history. So so. Starting with the, the, there were hunter gatherers forever. Yeah. Nobody cared about marriage. The, yeah. There was like, it wasn't even really discussed. Then there was a- agriculture. So, so the last ice age ended about eleven or thirteen thousand years ago. And over that, in that, over that time, over the course of basically ten thousand years, society after society after society went from a nomadic hunter gatherer to agricultural. Yeah, it's it's then that even the earliest of these folks was able to extract a yield of up to 100 times as many calories per acre. Right, and right. it's only then that people have any wealth, yeah. right? So then, then it's for the first time that, it's, that some members of society don't have to devote themselves full-time to food production. And then once you have wealth, then you start to care about who marries whom yeah. because there's this, because of inheritance, basically. And they yeah. care a lot about illegitimacy. Like this oh, was a yeah. huge deal. Like, yes. it, you know, did it happen within marriage or outside of marriage? Because and you have to figure out how, where wealth, the resource goes. That is exactly yeah. it. That's why it was yeah. so taboo to have yeah, sex, out, yeah, to yeah, have yeah. a child outside of marriage. And it was so shaming. <laughs> and we had words like bastard. Yeah. So it was only in that era that we, that anybody. I've heard this linked to yeah. sexuality too. How the so? Sex, well, the sexuality, it, it, when economic constraints are high, that sexuality is, oh. is becomes synonymous with contract. Interesting. Right? And so it's not about recreation, or at least it's less it's about It's high risk. It's high risk. That's right. And, and as you go up the resource ladder, uh, sexuality becomes more recreational. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it certainly was true. I don't, I don't know the extent to which this overlaps with, with your observations. I mean, it certainly was true, say, in courtly, courtly love. This was Middle Ages. But, uh-huh. but this was agricultural societies um, that, you know, the, the elite of society uh, certainly cared a lot about passion. I mean, there were, there were yeah. the troubadours. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, there, there were the, um, the, oh, why am I forgetting? Anyway, there were a whole bunch of different groups that cared about romantic passion or cared yeah. about sexuality, but never with your wife. 
<laughs> Seriously, by definition, it was like not something that you would ever do. Right, that was that, not the point. It's like but, your business partner. That, right. Your wife yeah. was your business partner. Your, your husband was your business yeah. partner. The, these were things that were... Uh, you know, contractual, and if anything, it was debasing uh-huh. to 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 I, the covenant or the yes. yeah 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 to, to to treat like sex and passion as something that you would do in marriage. It was all by definition adulterous, and yeah, that was considered yeah, yeah. like the right way to do it. <laughs> and it is our it is forgive your listeners may not like this. It is a little arbitrary. I mean, wh- why yeah. why have we linked this specific constellation of factors that have to happen within the marital bond. Yeah. And, and, and some of them are almost inherently contradictory. So, so, for example, we want our spouse, this is a lot of your work, right? We want our spouse to, to be the place where we can go when we need soothing and care. Yes. Um, and who will yeah, help us regulate our emotions and make us feel safe when we're anxious and so forth. But that's often not that hot, Right. So you could have imagined that we would have built a different system, something more like what the troubadours might have had, for example, where you have somebody who's really you're, you're responsible for each other's emotional support, like you're, you're right. each other's rock. Right. And then you could imagine that there's somebody else who's like fiery and irresponsible and like just <laughs> you have like really hot sex with those people. <laughs> and and that there wouldn't be some inherent contradiction or immorality to those views. Yeah. Th- these things are much more arbitrary than we want to admit. Um, but we link them, I think, and we care well, a lot. I think first, first that they are clearly arbitrary. I mean, well, I mean, maybe not totally, because you have these yeah, patterns, right? There, 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 yeah. there, there are patterns. It's not like North America is where this happens. Right. This, the, these kinds of patterns happen. You know, sex and contract uh, are are linked a lot. Yep. Uh, because sex makes babies, That's probably. Right. Uh, um, and but and, and can make bonding. And can make bonding, right? Yeah. It makes it makes bonding, and you know, it's it it, it it's all. So so it's 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 not totally arbitrary, no, but it has right. the potential to be arbitrary where where resources are are sufficient, probably. Yeah, arbitrary was arbitrary was the wrong word. It's it's um, it has taken on a a moral rigidity that seems superfluous, and yeah. many and but and, is it superfluous? I mean, oh, go, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I mean, many. Um, I, I'm concerned about the default nature of the monogamy assumption, right? I, I'm I'm alarmed that that. So some people ask the question, is monogamy realistic? And they, and they usually want to answer no. The question shouldn't be, is monogamy realistic? Yes, it's realistic. You can do it if yeah. it's a priority. But that it's not trivial to do. So, so, so I think the, the question that I would have people ask on a, on a unique basis, they, each couple can ask this of itself, is monogamy sensible for us? Yeah. Because, it's, because it's treated as if like, oh, well, that's just the obvious default. We're going to do that. And then we start thinking about all the other things as if we haven't already made a big ask. Yeah, but we have. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so monogamy is great. I have nothing against it. M- many people, in fact, maybe most people are probably best suited by having a monogamous marriage. I'm totally enthusiastic about it. But the fact that it's treated as if, as if it's not going to be work, as if it's like self-evident, as if it's... Um, anything other than impressive, right? It's treated as, as a yeah, default. Yeah, anything, uh, it's like you haven't well, slept with anybody for five years. Like there should be a celebration <laughs> about that. So, so since human nature has come up, the, 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 it seems, you know, there, there, there's, people are always looking for these broad generalities about human behavior. And, and it's, as you know, very hard to find those because, right. because one of the most, most, uh, realistic generalities about human behavior is that we have flexibility. We're right, incru- exactly. we, we have these massive brains that afford us this incredible range of behavioral f- flexibility. So then it seems to me that the questions change. It's not about are, are humans 
monogamous or not. It's under what conditions yes. does monogamy make the most sense exactly. and under what, sh- what conditions does it not? And that's why I, I, I can't help myself anymore from always coming back to resources, budgeting, sort this of goals that, that, that need to be met. What are the means to those goals? Yep. All of these things sort of fu- function as, 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 as sort of structural organizing principles yeah. for questions like, should there be monog- or are we are we monogamous yeah i mean i have i have exactly the same the same reaction so so anytime that that you know a, a scientist gets gets on the radio or or an individual married person wants to think this through or have a discussion with her spouse about these things it it's not a it shouldn't be a good bad necessary evil sort of calculus it should be what are our priorities yeah and what resource investment is going to be required in order to achieve those things and what are we not prioritizing what are yeah. we willing to say yeah what's the what's the trade off what precisely yeah. what is it that we're willing to say boy i've asked a lot of this one relationship and i don't want to overburden it or be unrealistic because that's likely to have costs on the quality of the relationship and the satisfaction that my spouse and I have in the marriage and the fulfillment that we have. So if people were serious about this, I think they would like make a list. What is it that's, that's important um, to achieve in the marriage? And what am I actually asking of the marriage? I think they'll be shocked by actually what yeah, they're looking to their partner yeah, to do. Yeah. I think they don't notice. And then there's a conversation that's like, all right, well, realistically, if I'm really going to expect this person to be my primary or even sole source of, of emotional support and sexual fulfillment and have this person who helps me discover who I am and and achieve my idea, grow toward my ideal self, and like you go down this list of high-level intensive psychological things, it's like, well, what's going to be required to do that? And then am I willing to invest those and things? And then will and we're willing to invest yeah. in it. And also, let's be honest, there's also, you know, how, wh- how do I understand myself? We all, we all, yes. We're all individuals with, with cultural, behavioral histories and backgrounds. Things have been sort of inculcated in the way, the way we view things, the way what hurts our feelings or what makes us excited. You know, they're going to vary. That's right. So how, what are we willing to, how are we willing to, to negotiate that as well? That's right. I mean, th- this is one of my major concerns about one-size-fits-all recommendations yeah. by the way in the replicability crisis yeah but but also i know i know, I know. Uh, I, also applied yeah. to marriage as well it's like i couldn't write a book that that says the seven secrets to a, a, a happy marriage unless that book were seven questions that you should pose to Maybe the that's ma- what you should write yeah i mean that that will be part of my book yeah is, is basically what are the questions that people need to think through and on a case by person by person or couple by couple basis figure out their own answers to yeah there's not going to be the these like well here's the way you need to t- support people for, for example like your work largely comes out of the attachment theory tradition although not i mean i didn't know that until okay. until later so inadvertently, inadvertently well let's say it this way phil and mario were delighted when yes your, when i your know paper came out. i know so and i view your when i discuss your work in class and so forth uh-huh. i talk about it as as attachment um, work in large part because it was it was I think the first certainly I think the first neural work to get serious about the nature of the attachment bond yeah. so not just individual yeah. differences in anxiety and avoidance but the normative attachment yeah. system yeah. like like you know anxiety triggers the, t- the attachment system and then can you find a safe haven yeah Think about the way that people like to be supported, right? Uh-huh. So, so I could imagine as a relationship researcher, or you, you could imagine as a relationship researcher, a researcher writing a book that yeah. says, 
here's how to um, soothe somebody who's experiencing anxiety. Yeah. Um, I suspect that I don't want to be treated in that way, right? I, oh, I'm a, you said you've said. Yeah, I yeah. saw you said at, the, at a conference. You were you were said, you said something rather provocative. Let's say you said like if, if you're anxious and someone tries to touch you, yeah. you're going to say fuck off. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe that was hyperbole. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, let me say this: my my wife has certainly learned, and not because I've actually, you know, yelled at her. Or, or sure, certainly I've never. Right. So you're not actually going to say that. No, but I'm going to feel it. You're going to feel it. Yeah. So so that's the thing is like usually like reasonable responses to things like I had a bad day or I just stubbed my toe. Yeah. Are things like. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Back rub, kiss yeah. on the head. Yeah, I that is the last thing I want. So and, you, that would make make you like. Well, anyway, I don't want to ang- keep going. A- angry uh, and like get out of my face. And and again, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a. Maybe it is true that I'm a, a pathological case, but I doubt it. I think what I am is somebody who's generally securely attached, but has some avoidant leanings and basically always has. Yeah. And in my vulnerable moments. That gets the it, single it, worst thing to do is do the oh baby you know like <laughs> like be tender and sweet to me. It basically wow. the best thing to do. <laughs> I like your surprise. The, the the best thing to do is give it two minutes. Two Just minutes too. It it depends. I mean, if I've like hurt myself, it's yeah. probably less than two minutes. Uh-huh. If I've like like ah, you know, just bash my head on something, like two two minutes, it won't be hurting anymore, and I'll be totally back but to it's myself. Because you get but but here's the interesting part: is it because you get this because I have anger. Like I have anger problems, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so, so for stuff? me, mm, so for me, what, what I'm just, just thinking about your example, if I, when I hit my head or something, yeah. I'll have this surge of rage yeah. and it's not that I don't like to be soothed so much as that I'm just a live wire at that moment. I, yeah, it's a little different for me. Yeah. Again, to the degree that we have accurate introspection about yeah, this. Right, but right, but exactly. I think, I suspect you're being accurate about yourself. And, and my best guess, if I, if I do the sort of armchair psychoanalysis, self psychoanalysis is Yes, I experienced some like, oh, that that was upsetting and the pain hurts. And now I'm kind of angry about the fact that I just bashed my head and I'm in yeah. pain. But that there is something unique on top of that that um, is like, don't get near me when I'm vulnerable. Huh. Yeah. And by the way, to, to your listeners know, I'm not advocating this as like the optimal lifestyle. Well, and you know, I think most people will be able to get that. But, but I, I just have to tell you, it sort of surprises me when I when the construct of Eli Finkel that I have in my mind <laughs> emphasizes someone who's extremely flexible with affect. So so other people's negative affect doesn't seem to me that it would be that frightening to you. It's not and, other you know, people's negative but, affect. But even yours, it seems yeah. like... Well, I don't know, but maybe that's... No, no, I, I think you, you have a more benign um, I view see. of me than is true. Well, I mean, I... Could be. Like, if, if I've had something that's, um, you know, a negative experience of work or I feel shame about something, yeah, I, I clam up. And again, I, w- I wouldn't... I, I'm not... The, the, the reason why we, we brought up this general topic... Yeah. is certainly not to psychoanalyze me or to advocate to for this sort of clamming up approach. I think it's probably maladaptive. The reason why we're talking about it here is the cookie cutter solution to what to do when your husband uh, is suffering right. yeah. would would fail in a rather spectacular fashion with you with me and, and with I, with uh, Jeff Simpson would say roughly 25% of the population. I think that's probably right. I mean yeah. I I, I I'm willing to say that if this applies to only me and that I'm a unique case, then then your listenership shouldn't care. Yeah, but yeah. I don't believe that. I, yeah. I don't believe that I have a a completely warped psychological architecture. The fact is, these attachment dimensions, say anxiety and avoidance, the 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 you know a highly anxious person probably wants that soothing way longer than the average secure yeah, person yeah, wants yeah, it, yeah, and the yeah. average avoidant person 
like want everybody out of the room when feeling vulnerable. Um, and so this is why there, there's no, there's, I think never going to be uh, uh, any guidebook that can tell you when you confront situation X, the optimal behavior is Y. Yeah. There might be main effects. There might be like, this is better than like, you know, punching your partner in the face, right? Like, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> but I think there's, but, but I think the main thing is going to be this, this highly, you know, um, sensitive to individual differences, sensitive to individual psychological idiosyncrasies yeah. that, that and these right. weren't as crucial to marital wellness in 1800. Yeah, and the world was shittier then. <laughs> the world was way shittier. Way shittier. Yeah. We managed to yeah. feel oppressed nonetheless, though. Yeah, I know. Heroically. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly. Yeah. Cool. Well, okay. Well, that, that all makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, you know, my own work, I definitely think that I've neglected the individual differences end You've of things. you avoidance, right? Mm, you know, I did in the early sample, and now... Although small Here's for the moderation. Now, right. Now, in the, in the age that we are in... Yeah. I, it is almost unpublishable. So there's 16 subjects with a, with a moderator. No, you're right. And yeah, it's just not not publishable. Pre-register. But I agree with you. But the, you know, but 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 you, you you know the thing is, if I showed you or anyone the data, and I could, yeah, um, you would go. That makes 100 percent sense and was predicted by at least two dozen people over the last three decades. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So the. Um, I am worried about this be because relationships research is, is vulnerable to this movement in the ways that, yeah. that you and I have talked about previously. And neuroscience is vulnerable oh, to, yeah. to this movement, yeah, probably yeah. more than relationships research. Again, the issue f for people who aren't paying attention to the replicability crisis roiling reproducibility. the sciences. Reproducibility. Reproducibility yeah. uh, um, crisis roiling the sciences is this, this um, rather abrupt change in what the standards are of how many subjects you need and so yeah. forth. And there's yeah. a, a very, very good reasons for those. Yeah. Um, but are we going to do those at the expense of the ability to conduct certain types of research that we can all look at and say that research has value. And if conclusions have to be slightly more tentative, then so be it. Yeah. And that seems like the, again, a, a, a sophisticated adult mature way to think about trade-offs yeah, is, is, yeah. is, is I think yeah. that approach. Yeah. I love the trade-offs view of yeah. these things. I love the trade-offs view of most things. All things basically. I mean, but also uh, one of the things that, that does bother me about the, the, the putative movement is, is a, a lack of empirical attention to the the dictates the, the the new dictates i mean you know we 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 just just for for shits and giggles in a way my my student and i uh we we have a study nicely powered study mri study of how uh trade anxiety interacts with the hand-holding effect that oh. we they're gonna you know it's and this is like over 80 subjects it's not oh. so we took that finding and we and we we made a prediction that we'd see that we just we had the same uh uh data in the original 16 sample so we said well will we see it in the original sample we yeah. do and so so and, you know we, the, so so you see the same associations it's it's still this is statistically significant but it's in 16 people that we that we went yeah. back in time to look at i think i know where so, you're going yeah. you know you know, what I'm, you know so yeah. so well no so so the the uh, this is one of the issues that that has been alarming to me that i don't think has been discussed yet i think this is what you're bringing up right so so you have it in in a in a large sample study yes so the question is should we be more convinced or less convinced of the effect now that you also have it in a second study that's got a small sample? Right. And I think you and I have the intuition that, um, that 
okay, so that, that second study, the older study, is not definitive because we now know enough about uh, the problems of small samples that we don't want to draw strict yeah. conclusions. But I think both of us would feel comfortable saying that there is an increment in our confidence an in the effect. increment some, has been achieved. So yeah, some yeah. non-zero amount yeah. of increased confidence in the effect because it's been replicated. The irony is the, the statistical forensics procedures that people have been developing <clears throat> would, would draw exactly the opposite conclusion. That's yeah. why I raise it. Yeah. Right. And now I guess the argument would be if it were all pre-registered, maybe that would help. Maybe, yeah, there would that be would less help. concern about yeah. it. Although the statistical procedures are indifferent to pre-registration. That's right. That's yeah. right. I don't know. I, I, I mean, if it turns out that that you can't or people like you can't do the sorts of research you've been doing over the last decade um, or can only do one study every few years because you need to... Because you have to get 100 subjects through, you know, an, MRI, through, the MRI. through an fMRI yeah. machine, and hell knows, you know, some of them are going to move, yep. and yep. you're going to have to throw out the data because yeah. they move their head. Yeah. And so, I, like, if that's the end... That, that's the part that, that really terrifies me about the movement. There's all sorts of great things about it, but if it turns out that there's just you know, in some senses, the very best, most convincing, most compelling work that we as a field know how to do gets replaced with a bunch of mechanical Turk studies yeah. because it's easy to get big samples. Like, man, why aren't we talking more about that problem? Well, and, and also the problem of constrained methodological creativity. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are, Alan Kasdan wrote this amazing book in the, in the I think the 80s, that that's in like its fifth or sixth edition. It's just it's just research methods in clinical psychology. It's the driest title in the world, but it's I highly recommend it because it is st stuffed with with research designs that 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 maximize causal inference with small samples. Interesting. With with single samples, wow. case study designs, uh, you know, multiple baseline designs for very small rare diseases. You know, uh, ABAB designs that we know where where you 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 try to uh, understand the mechanism by switching it on and switching it yeah, off and switching yeah. it on. There there are so many options for for uh, increasing sensitivity to real effects with small samples that if we if we if we restrict our solution to to a sample size adjustment it just doesn't make any sense i suspect this would this would be an argument that would be palatable to people who are more activist in this space that, than you and I are. It, yeah. there, there's been a, there has been a greater discussion, I think, in the last year or two, you've probably seen some of this, that yeah, says a little bit. increasing power, there's lots of ways to do that. It doesn't yes. have to be big samples. Yes. And that's, I think, the point you're making here. So, so that, I think, is not going to be a third rail. Like, the, everyone will grant that, I think, yeah, non-defensively. Yeah. Non yeah. It's other stuff, like replicability is great, Um and it's true that, that all else equal, the larger the sample size is, the more replicable the effect is likely to be. But what are the other parameters that also matter? And, and under what circumstances are we willing to sacrifice this, um, this percentage of replicability of a given study for this level of innovation, of creativity, of methodological rigor, uh, right. of, of unique sampleness? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it, it's like, in fact... Unique I, sampleness. Nick, unique sampleness favorite. is, is going to be the title yeah. of my <laughs> transactive goal dynamics. <laughs> colon unique sampleness yeah i mean i actually want to check out i like i'm not enjoying um being involved in the debates i, I find a lot yeah. of it to be pretty unpleasant but and and i would be happy to check out as long as we i could get a commitment from everybody that i feel like everybody should be willing to commit to which is can we have a rule that says anytime we want to propose a policy or even <clears throat> consider current practices we must 
think about the reverberations for the other desiderata, the other valued yeah. criteria. How of does science. it fit into the ecosystem? Yes. How does yeah. it fit into the ecosystem? Yeah, because there is an ecosystem view of this, right. and, and and this is what you've really been talking about and writing about beautifully. Is this? There's all. There, there's virtually always trade-offs. There's there there are competing. Yeah interests in the in the canonical one is the external internal validity right. uh, uh, problem you know yeah, this that's is right. just true that's right and and so if if that happened that that there was just a, an, an increasing i believe to be the right word is recognition yeah. of that fact i mean that 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 you can no longer write papers that say science is in crisis replicability here are six things to do about the replicability problem yeah like th that it's now yes that's a great paper as long as it is accompanied <clears throat> by these are the prices that we're going to pay for the changes that we want to make to increase replicability yeah if they're if they're thinking aloud about it i don't really have a horse in the race about what the right trade-offs are i'm not knowledgeable enough and not that interested in figuring that stuff out let the methodologist do that but just a recognition that that all practices including current practices in fairness yeah. have a set of trade-offs embedded within them yeah and that it shouldn't be okay anymore in 2011 it was probably fine but it shouldn't be okay anymore to make recommendations about solving a specific problem for a specific desideratum of science like for example replicability without actually thinking through, okay, well, that means we're going to run a lot fewer studies or that Jim Cohn can't do fMRI studies anymore. Like, okay, th these are costs, and maybe, you know, and let's debate them. And let's maybe it's true yeah. that, that shutting down Jim Cohn's lab or making you run one study every four years is a good trade-off, that, that, that the increased replicability is worth the loss yield of number of research questions people like you get to ask. It may well be. I doubt it. But it may well be that that's right. good for science. And right. as long as people are engaging with that question, I'm out. I just want the engagement with that question to be the the, the main topic in the field. Is it my imagination or... It, and I hate good old days kinds of points, but, yeah. but you know, you, you, I think of Cook and Campbell, yeah. uh, even... Uh, um, uh, what's the classic stats test? Cohen and Cohen. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the trade-offs language was all over the place. In there. When you, when you talk, talk about the list, you know, remember in Cook and Campbell, they go through all the threats to validity they do. and how to, how, to, how to cope with all the various threats to validity. Yeah. And there's trade-offs all over the place. And this is what makes it hard. That's right. Right. And, and certainly the, the McGrath article that we've, we've yeah, right. referenced yes. recently mm -hmm. that, that talks about internal and external validity, yeah. for example. Yeah. I mean, look, in, in fairness to the, the sort of more activist side of, of the people in this discussion, None of those people really understand understood p hacking. I, I mean, I think none yeah, of us did, and I, I think didn't. that's right. I think well, I think I definitely let it. I, I certainly didn't have a word for it, and words are useful, and they, they they consolidate a lot of conceptual thinking. It's worse they, than that for me, and I think probably for you, for and for most of the field. Like I didn't realize. I, I never had the thought that you run until the end of the semester, and then you analyze the data, and if it's a p of less than 0 0.05, you stop. <clears throat> And if it's a P of greater than 0.4, you stop. But if it's a P of 0.07 or 0.16, you collect more data to see if it yeah, yeah, levels yeah. into a yeah. 0.05 or doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Never did I think, <laughs> it was called getting more power. Yeah, yeah. Ne never did I How realize like, <laughs> oh, but actually you've already used up your 0.05 error, the, the, the type one error that you're allowing, when you ran the first analysis and now you're playing like on house money, basically, when you yeah. do the additional hypothesis test. And, and same thing, even with outliers. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I guess we kind of knew that it was shenanigany the way we were, oh, it's 0.07. Oh, now I'm going to think to look for an outlier, but it didn't occur to me before. So 
I mean, those are things that I think we didn't. And and when we looked for outliers, yes, it was oriented toward trying to get PLS and 0.05, but it was always yeah. Yeah. with the belief that this is going to reveal. <laughs> yeah. Like there was the some truth. weird. Yeah, there's yeah, some weirdo who's not right. from the same population. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that they've it, done more than just. I I agree. I agree. I, I agree that I, I agree, and also yeah. just just these you know these methodological conversations are good to have, they and are. it's been. It's been heuristically valuable for that sense. For me, it was it was the the discovery in in grad school of, of multi level modeling. Right. So as soon as I started you know, the the transition period where I went from sort of running a standard ANOVA to more HLM yeah. kind right. of kind of research uh, or, or data analysis, that's where where I you know I would face situations where this way it's significant and that's way it's, it's or you not, let the slopes vary yeah, right, or, yeah, not. So, or not yeah. how do you know do you do you model the random slopes and that's right and, you know the, the <laughs> now we just do by the way we just you know, we've sort of figured it out yeah but 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 there was that period of time where it's like yeah. and we shenaniganed we yeah. shenaniganed yeah. our way around point yeah, five. Yeah. they're correct but but and and we sh- and we should have been better and we didn't really realize that the shenanigans had consequences yeah and, and we're way better tuned in but but let me actually riff on that exact example the, the then multi-level modeling came around and was tr- well i think it really came around a while before but it was translated for relationships research yeah, and psychologists yeah, yeah, yeah i mean it's like all of us just did it so so yeah. so all, and the reason why i think that's relevant to this discussion is sometimes i think some of the leaders of the movement feel like there's resistance to improving methods but every time dave kenny tells me yeah 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 look absolutely. we discovered a new way to do it and yeah. it's this way we just right. did it it's yeah. it's never like we yeah. thought oh i don't know i'm thinking maybe i won't do that so 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 it's not a resistance to change this part bothers me it's how convinced are we that specific recommendations are going to be from the useful are actually good for yeah. science yeah 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 and no, i, I completely agree I, I know you and i yeah. agree but yeah. but i but i think this is something that, that I, 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 I'd like, I hope this podcast gets heard by, you know, zillions of people. I in hope the world. so too. <laughs> yeah. But, but specifically about this, it's like, I am changing right away. Like I, I know yeah. that I sometimes seem like I'm like putting up roadblocks to change. I have changed. Oh yeah. Hundreds me too. Of behaviors we're, in my we're, life. we're, 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 we have this new grant. We're, we're integrating it as much as we can with the open science framework. We're, we're yeah. trying to put all the data online in a public, publicly yeah, accessed. You know, it's all new. We totally never, new. it never would have occurred to and me before that. And the sample sizes are bigger yeah. and the, the paying attention yeah. as you spitball ideas with your students to make sure right. that you're right. like, you know, that you're not harking, hypothesizing yeah, right, after the right, results right, are known. Right. I've changed all of these things, but that's, but, but so, so they're wrong to detect resistance from me. They're right to detect resistance to policy. Yeah. I mean, that's the major yeah, thing. Me is too. We can't have policy level it. change. We're not ready. And so policy level changes that should apply to all scholars and all disciplines, I don't think we'll ever be ready for. But even at the level of, okay, within relationships research with couples, I don't think we've thought through the trade-offs yet. Yes. The movement is five years old. Yes. We've made massive <laughs> progress. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you're, 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 the, the distinction between useful new tool, useful new strategy that yes. can help you do better science yes. and policy that we're going to use to constrain your movement right that's that's all the difference in the world that's all the difference in the world but but the truth is policy that constrains your movement i'm in favor of that too as long as i'm convinced that it in fact improves yeah. science and i'm and, not a, yeah. i'm not even sure i mean i yes i, I put in put in those terms but but even though politically i'm a progressive leftist centralized government scientifically i'm totally a libertarian you are there's so much yeah. that we don't know 
about the creative process still. There's so much that we don't know about the generation of, of hypotheses, the, 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 the moments of insight that people have looking at, at data sets that I would look at the same data set and see, you know, the bottom of the ocean. I don't, I wouldn't see anything. Right. Uh, we just don't understand we're, yeah, that. We're so, so yeah. really, science. What I mean to say by that, to me, is it's 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 the old west. It's anything goes. It's a it's a free for all hellscape on some level. Yeah. Because it's the, because it's that unknowable. The future we don't we don't really know how. I haven't thought through this. I mean, this is this is I mean, a this is an interesting set of ideas, and I'm trying to think through. So, I, so everything you say is is sensible and if you want to use non-political language it's the let many flowers bloom sure approach and one 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 other brief thing i mean allison ledgerwood at uc davis talks a lot about the start local approach yeah and and to some degree she's very i think simp- she's a m- more activist i think in the movement than we are but she's simpatico with this broad idea of one size fits all solutions and top-down policies are going to be destructive so her take is you in your own lab Pay attention and in good faith, listen to the issues in the movement. When you find something convincing, change your practices. If you learn, oh, that didn't work in a sensible way for our lab, not not work as in 0.05 work, but wasn't sensible for our lab, then do something different yep. and that this is that this is the optimal strategy for here. Your point is, is interesting because I'm wondering if there isn't a downstream implication for that of that, that science is arbitrary. I mean, it's interesting yeah. to think. Th- it's interesting yeah, to take I, seriously I, I, your idea yeah. and think through. Well, well, what does it actually mean? Does anything go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. What what I don't mean to say is that there aren't ways to improve the probability that we are doing sure. learning about things. I, mean, I, I wouldn't say that at all. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah. there's a whole giant collect. I I never would want to abandon the immense progress that we've all made methodologically, including right. the recommendations of the more activist folks that we're talking about exactly. right now. Yeah. Never, never, yeah. ever, ever. The problem is I don't know what someone's going to find out, not in terms of content, but in terms of process. I don't know what someone's going to figure out how to do a thing or, yeah. or how to, how to, it's, it's just there. There, I, I, I'm in favor of principles. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, publicly verifiable transparency, you know, transparency. Yeah. Uh, I'm not in favor of rules yeah it's a it's that's that's just my yeah I mean bias. transparency in some ways I, I don't want to say sufficient but I think trans- greater transparency than we all had in 2011 would go a long way toward addressing yeah real problems that we yeah had I agree and ignored. yeah and I and, and and most of the activist folks that I know of certainly Brian Nosek yeah. It makes that point all the time. Yeah. The transparency is sort of like the the ultimate. Yeah, and then readers virtue. can judge for themselves. Yeah, reviewers right. can yeah. judge for themselves yeah. as long as they have the information and they they didn't get some some scrubbed, prettified right. version of things. Right. Then they can judge how convincing the evidence is. And and the reader, once something's published, then she can judge. Dude, yeah. uh, I didn't talk at all about your life, <laughs> but this, this was fantastic, yeah, and we got to stop. Fun. Very fun. Sounds good, Thank my you. friend. Thanks for the time. Okay, that's it, everyone. Thanks to thanks to Eli Finkel for a lively and informative chat. You are fun to talk to, mister. You, you make it easy. Can't wait to do that again. And as I've said before, if I can catch up with him, I'll, I'll ask him to come back soon. And uh, we'll, we'll talk some more about his personal life. Folks, the, the music on Circle of Willis is written by Tom Stouffer and Gene Rooley and performed by their band The New Drakes. 
Uh, for information about how to purchase this music, check the About page uh, at circleofwillispodcast.com. And, uh, and don't forget that Circle of Willis is brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. And that, that Circle of Willis is a, is a member of the Tege FM network. You can find, more, uh, find out more about that at uh, teej.fm. All right. I'll see you all at episode three where, uh, where I talk with Lisa Diamond of the University of Utah about sexual identity, both the science and her own personal story. And, uh, and hopefully she won't, she won't get me into any trouble. Until then, see you all next time. Bye-bye. To the citywide collective center So I you'll never learn how not to be alone The way you'll never belong to the hour you think you own Citywide collective memory kicks in To the citywide collective center